Let's turn to God's word. And I'm reading from John 20, The Empty Tomb. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord and she told them that she, that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God. Thanks, Norm. If you're reading in a paper Bible or a screen Bible, I encourage you to leave it there to John 20. We're also going to be looking at the next chapter as well. Isn't it true that you can deal with enemies as long as you've got good friends? You know, as long as you've got allies to support you and to stand alongside you, people who will step up and defend you, people who will maybe take a bullet for you or fight on your side no matter what. And if you're sitting there and you're wondering whether you have friends like that, you're not alone. If you are wondering whether your friends would 
sacrifice on your behalf, it's a fair thing to wonder. And if you're not sure if you would do that for your friends, again, you're not on your own. We are all by nature selfish people. Given the choice, we struggle to choose loyalty over self-protection. Just look at the friends of Jesus. Their friend was the best friend a friend could ever have, but when he faced opposition, when he came up against enemies, they ran and they hid. One of them betrayed him, one of them denied him, and all the others, except maybe John, were nowhere to be seen. In one of his songs, uh, artist Michael Card asks and answers this question, why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? And why did he use a kiss to show them that that's not what a kiss is, is for? Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. In the time of need, Jesus' friends were hardly distinguishable from his enemies. Especially because his friends could cause damage in these even deeper ways. Because they were friends. And as we continue to put ourselves in the place of the people around the cross today, which we've done on Friday and the Sunday before, we learn that as potential friends, there is not much loyalty in us. We betray and and we deny and, and we choose our own interests and safety over that of our friend, Jesus. As I said on Friday, there are no good guys and bad guys in this story. There is only Jesus, the perfect victim, and everybody else, the selfish participants and causes of his death. We are all, as the series says, accessories to his murder. And if that was all there is, if that's where I was ending today, that would make Easter a pretty depressing time, wouldn't it? Horrible. It's supposed to be a happy day, isn't it? That's not all there is. Because what we see is that, especially after his resurrection, Jesus befriends disloyal people. He takes the initiative to love them and to forgive them and to restore them. It's all him, it's all his grace, and that's what we have to see today. And so we're going to do that using John's Gospel, look at a few of Jesus' friends after his resurrection and how we can identify with them and learn from their interactions with him. And so we start with Mary Magdalene, whom we just read about. She was a good, close friend of Jesus. And that, of course, because he had taken the initiative to befriend her and heal her of her demons and her sin. But like the disciples, she followed him and she supported him in in his ministry in so many ways. She was always there. And unlike many of the disciples, she actually stayed with Jesus to the bitter end at the foot of the cross. She stuck by his side. She even tended to his tomb afterwards, which is where we find her on resurrection morning, when she discovers that the tomb is empty. And yet despite Mary's various expressions of loyalty, she's still there to grieve a dead friend. That's what she's doing there. Like the disciples, she hasn't understood Jesus' words about 
rising again, and he made it clear. She believes that he's gone. And when she discovers the empty tomb, she assumes that, well, the body's got to have been stolen. And even as she turns around and meets Jesus, she doesn't recognize him. Why? Because the idea of him being alive is so far out of her scope of, of what's possible that she just doesn't see it. She is stuck in her grief. And for us, no matter how clearly we might see the cross and maybe even identify with the people who caused it, don't we still struggle to see the resurrection for what it truly is? The power and the life. Perhaps we live as if Jesus is still dead and our religion is a bit like a tomb-tending ministry. And I think that becomes really evident when grief and when sadness overwhelm us like there's no hope. And when we don't recognize Jesus' power to reverse death and its effects in this world. It's evident when we, we don't acknowledge that He has power to breathe life into the lifeless. And we look at people who are spiritually dying, we just think that's just how they're stuck, nothing's going to change. And this is what it's like when Christians just keep to themselves and they withdraw, perhaps into that upper room that they were in, and they just keep to their religion. It's like honouring a dead hero and keeping a quiet little vigil off in the corner somewhere. And maybe if you're here today and you're not a believer, this might be the way that you see Christians. They honour a dead master and they hold this kind of never-ending vigil. And it's dull. I mean, why keep talking about this dead guy. But as we've said, Jesus is alive. We live for a living King. As we saw last week, He's reigning at God's right hand in power and in glory, in majesty. He has risen. And in verse 16, we get this beautiful reality in a personal way. Uh, Jesus said to her, Mary, I can't assume what I know how he said that, but she turns toward him and cries out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. And it's as if Jesus speaks her name in such familiarity, such love as, as a friend, and suddenly the lights go on for her. And judging by the next verse, she adds this desperate embrace to her exclamation. Because not only is the Saviour alive, the Saviour of the world, but this relationship, this friendship is restored. And for those here who have lost loved ones, how much we might yearn for a relationship to be restored in the same way, right? These friends are reconciled. There is such joy in their reunion. And Mary is here as the first person that Jesus appeared to. A special privilege, a special relationship. And see, the risen Lord continues to befriend those of us who are in grief, in loss, in sadness. No matter what the state of our loyalty is, Jesus befriends us. 
If we are living as if he is still dead and and feeling defeated and feeling scared, he reminds us that he's alive, faithfully, every day. And he befriends us and he restores us to joy. He speaks our name with familiarity. And we see how faith is not just a vigil, it is a living relationship with a living friend. And that mention of faith then takes us to the next character, which is Thomas. After appearing to Mary, Jesus appears to the rest of the disciples, uh, who, by the way, are grieving and hiding away uh, in the aftermath of Jesus' death. But Thomas isn't there with them, at least not at first. And so when they try and tell him the good news when he joins the party, he refuses to believe them. And we've got to just pause and recognise this is ten guys saying, Thomas, Jesus is alive, we've seen him. And he's like, no, I don't care how many of you say it, I'm not buying it. Too bad, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, unless I can do all of those things, I'm not going to believe it. And what I really wanted to say today, on a more positive note, is that what separates Jesus' friends from his enemies, as we've looked at the last two uh, parts, is their faith in who he is. Their faith that nothing could stop Jesus. Their faith that he would rise again, just as he said. But Thomas reminds us that even this is too much to ask, isn't it? He basically declares that he won't believe unless he sees with his own two eyes. Maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you refuse to believe all this religion stuff because you can't see it with your own two eyes. Maybe you only accept things that are right in front of you. And by the way, if that's the case, there is a whole lot of science that you cannot and should not accept. But maybe that's how it works for you. Maybe even if if you are a Christian, you might operate this way. Sure, you've got all that unseen stuff in the back of your mind, it lives there in the background, but as for the day today, you generally focus only on what's right in front of you. You don't think about the power stuff that's going on, about the spiritual realm, about all these other things that are happening. Or maybe you just struggle with doubt. You believe in God, in Jesus, but you sometimes wonder whether you should. What if it's all made up? Or maybe God's real. There seems to be a lot of things in this world that point to it, but, but maybe he just doesn't care about me. He's off way over there. He's up, up there. He's completely disconnected from me and what's going on down here. And again, it's Jesus initiating love that reassures us. So he doesn't reject Thomas for his doubt. He doesn't demand faith before a relationship. He doesn't make it a condition because otherwise if he did, there wouldn't be a single follower. No, Jesus befriends those who doubt. He shows himself to those who who need to see. 
He comes to those who are stuck in stubbornness. And in His power, He works. True for us, He generally doesn't do it bodily or physically. But He has. This is what the Word is all about, that Jesus actually did come physically into this world to die and then to rise again. It's written. The Word tells us this, the Word shows us the truth, and by the Holy Spirit, Jesus brings that truth home. He gifts us faith, just as he does with Thomas. And you might sit there and you might think, oh, I, don't, I don't feel like the Holy Spirit's doing that for me. But have you ever stopped and thought, well, what if I didn't have the Holy Spirit convicting me of these things? And see, Jesus shows that God is opposite of a disconnected, far away, uninvolved God. He came and He died. And he rose again. And Jesus knows our weaknesses. He knows that we cannot believe in our own strength. And so he takes the initiative. He shows us loyalty where we are completely lacking. And in his strength, we can live, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, by faith and not by sight. We can fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. As Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And what he's referring to is the resurrection itself. That Jesus rose from the dead, that he is alive, that he is reigning over the world the living King, and that He gives us purpose in His kingdom. And that brings us to the last character this morning, which is Simon Peter. I could easily spend a whole other half hour on Simon Peter, but I'm not going to do that. In short, Peter is, is one of Jesus' closest friends. But again, not often because of his loyalty. In fact, even when Peter's trying to be loyal, and he often does that desperately, you know, be loyal to Jesus, often it goes the wrong way. And Jesus at one point even has to say, you know, you're a tool of Satan, get, get out of my way. Throughout their relationship, Peter often misunderstands Jesus. He, he, he says stupid things, he picks the wrong fights. He's a hothead. He falls asleep with the others when Jesus is there you know, in grief in the garden and asking them to keep watch. He tries to kill in Jesus' name. And ultimately, he denies Jesus three times. Three times. I don't know this man. Don't look at me. I have no idea who he is. In biblical tradition, three times holds a significant emphasis bit like when God is declared to be holy, holy, holy. That seals the deal. It seals the deal. And when Peter says three times that he doesn't know Jesus, any other friend would walk away from that relationship. Wouldn't give it a second thought. But in this post-resurrection scene on the beach in John chapter 21, Jesus restores Peter and he renews 
the relationship. First, he causes this miraculous catch of fish, uh, which is the same as when he originally initiated the relationship with and, and called Peter and the others to follow him. Even though here they are after Jesus has died, they've gone back to fishing for fish, when he had clearly called them to fish for men, uh, and they're sort of going, well, what do we do? Well, let's just go back to fishing. Jesus still comes to them and shows his faithfulness. And he cooks them a meal on the beach and he offers them breakfast and he looks after them and he hangs out with them. He befriends them once again and there is a further reunion. And while Peter, of course, in his usual style you know, and, and zeal, he leaps out of the boat and he swims to Jesus as soon as he recognises and he's full of passion. It's still completely based on the initiating work of Jesus. And we see that again in the next part. Sitting around the campfire, three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And it deliberately echoes the three times that Peter has denied him, also around a fire. And again, while Peter displays loyalty in these answers, yes, Lord, of course I do. The greatest love is shown by Jesus, who is here in the first place, who is asking these questions, who is willing to reunite with him. Anyone else would have rejected Peter, but Jesus restores him, he accepts him, he refriends him. And not only does he renew the relationship, he also renews the mission and the purpose. This fisher of men is called to go and feed and to take care of Jesus' sheep, to look after the flock, to make followers of Jesus and to protect them. To grow the church, back in in Matthew, Peter would be the rock and Jesus would grow his church on him. And it would even be at the cost of his life, as it goes on to describe. The point is, A relationship with Jesus grants both identity and purpose. The identity of being a friend of Jesus and the purpose of befriending and loving others. It's not hard for us to think of the ways that we misunderstand Jesus, the ways that we deny him, the ways that we generally let him down. If you don't believe in him, you deny him simply by refusing to acknowledge his existence. And if you do believe in him, you deny him with every selfish thought, with every unloving action, every shred of lust, of greed, of envy, of pride. It all denies that Jesus is the living king, at least the living king in your life. But our relationship with Him is not based on our loyalty. It's not based on our faithfulness, it's based on His. In the words of the skit guys in America, you can't let Him down because you're never holding Him up. He holds us up, He befriends, He initiates, He loves and we simply accept it. 
Jesus dies to forgive our denial and our disloyalty. Just as he was judged by hypocritical humans to save said humans from judgment. Just as he he endured the shame of scorn in order to reverse things and to scorn that shame. So he dies to undo our betrayal. And he rises again to grant us new life. The old disloyal life that dies with him on the cross. And the new life in His faithfulness is raised within us. And it transforms us. No matter what guilt you are carrying around, and perhaps you're wearing a burden right now, you can be free of that by the power of Jesus. His death, His resurrection. You don't have to rid that of your own power. You don't have to have that strength. You just have to accept that Jesus can get rid of it for you. And that he befriends you despite your weakness. It is all about the initiating love of Jesus for his friends. For any of us who accept it. I'm going to break the rule that says you do not add anything new into your conclusion. Uh, Apologies to all the English teachers here. But I just feel I can't ignore this one last character. One more character. It's kind of subtle. And that is, of course, John himself. Throughout his gospel, John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's the title he gives himself. He's the one who sat next to him at the Last Supper. He stayed with Mary and Mary at the foot of the cross. And he won that uh, running race between him and Peter, to the empty tomb as well. But as the reference highlights, he's not special because he was, you know, really loyal to Jesus. And because he was so loving towards Jesus, he's special in the same way that the other disciples are special, in the same way that actually we are all special, which is that Jesus is loyal to us and that he loves us. Not because we first loved him, but because he first loved us and he died to forgive us and he rose to give us eternal life. What a joy to be counted, the disciples whom Jesus loved, the ones he calls friends. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have risen, that you have conquered sin, you have defeated death, and you have triumphed. That you who were once humbled and humiliated and out exalted and glorified. But Lord, we just want to acknowledge and confess that sometimes that's a disconnected reality. That we think of it in terms of truth, but not personally. We think of it in terms of doctrine, 
but not power in our own lives. And we thank you that we see in the Gospels, not just that you have objectively risen and that you rule now at God's right hand, but that you have restored relationship and you have renewed people and that you befriend all of us who are disloyal, who deny, who betray, who are weak, who are not very good friends. And we thank you that you choose to love us and that you do that first. We thank you that we, because of what you've done, can be counted as disciples whom Jesus loves. We pray, Lord, that that will rid us of guilt and of doubt and of grief, that it will stand brightly in our lives and give us hope and joy in every way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I ask you to stand? We're going to sing two songs in a moment. One to 